This is a State Library of Queensland podcast. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this podcast contains the names of people who have passed away. I think it was a toxic time, but it needed to be that because it needed to actually, when you're actually confronting the soft underbelly of racism, it needs to, you know, you need to, you can't pussyfoot around this. And so, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a hard time, but it was an exciting time. The 1990s were an interesting time. As a young Torres Strait Islander, it was the decade which encapsulated my high school and university years. It was a time of great change for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as well, as self-determination propelled Indigenous affairs into a new era. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, ATSIC, was set up as a national body to advise the federal government on Indigenous affairs and policy. The Torres Strait Islander Regional Authority was created to deliver better services and programs to Torres Strait Islanders living in the islands, which also gave them a direct line to Canberra. The report into the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the inquiry into the Stolen Generations were released. It meant that Indigenous politics and people were commonplace on the front pages of newspapers and in radio programs for most of the 90s. I remember it well as a young person who very much wanted to work in the media and had my heart set on it as my future career. The visibility of Indigenous people in the mainstream news cycle seemed to increase, but I also remember that a lot of the stories during this time weren't favourable or positive towards Indigenous people or our communities. While there's been a massive shift in the support of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander causes today from non-Indigenous Australians, if you were to time travel back to the 1990s, I don't think you'd believe what you saw or heard. I don't know why Dad didn't share with me what he was doing. All I can think that maybe what Uncle Kweki was going through in terms of the racism and the attacks that his family um, were facing during that time. So maybe, maybe Dad was protecting us from that. It's 1992, and 28-year-old Charles Passy is busy building a life in Brisbane and a career in the public service. His dad, the Reverend Dave Passy, has been fighting alongside Eddie Koike Marbo and the three other co-plaintiffs for a decade in a case that would become one of the most important court battles in Australian history. But as you just heard, Charles knew nothing about it. It wasn't until the decision from the High Court was handed down, finding in favour of the five Meriam plaintiffs, that Charles learnt about the work his father had been doing. So from the start, right up till the end, Dad really didn't share with me about the, um, the court case or what they were doing, what his part in it and things like that. I mean, I know if I knew what Dad was doing, I'd spend a lot of time with him. I'd probably get into it too and I'd put myself in danger. As you'll discover in this episode, Charles's dad had good reason to be worried for his son. Hi, I'm Eddie. It's a six-part series from the State Library of Queensland which explores how a man from a remote island in the Torres Strait helped dismantle a 200-year-old law which claimed that 
Prior to European settlement, Australia was terra nullius, nobody's land, uninhabited. It's been 30 years since the landmark case changed not only Australian law, but also profoundly changed how the history of this country is taught, written and critically thought about. Eddie Koiki Mabo, along with his co-plaintiffs for mayor, Reverend Dave Passy, Sam Passy, James Rice and Salua Mapusali, forever altered Australia. I'm Rihanna Patrick, a Torres Strait Islander journalist, and I was 15 when the judgment was handed down. In episode five, let's go below the fold to really dig into the media environment that the case found itself in and hear how that went into overdrive when other native title cases started to be launched. There's a reason why the saying, trial by media, exists. So there were a whole lot of things that were happening, you know, nationally from an Indigenous perspective, on Indigenous issues, but a whole lot of things happening also at the grassroots level. I remember there were calls for uh, autonomy in in the Torres Strait. Uh, I remember there were even calls for succession that, you know, the Torres Strait's become its own nation, so to speak. So it's a bit hard to pinpoint exactly where I was uh, on that time, but um, to remember that there were a lot of our issues that were um, on the national agenda at the time. That's Karen Patterson, or Karen Durante as she was known when she started working in the media. She was one of the few Torres Strait Islander broadcasters in a mainstream media organisation during the 1990s. Karen says the Meriam case really put the Torres Strait on the map. Well, I guess a lot of the time, particularly from non-Indigenous people, they didn't know where the Torres Strait was. We didn't exist, you know, unless you lived sort of um, near the equator in Queensland. You didn't know where the Torres Strait was. Below that, um, you know, say the line of Capricorn, I don't think anybody below Townsville knew where the Torres Strait was. So I think it put the islands on, on the map. As I mentioned in Episode 1, the Torres Strait is still a geographical mystery to many Australians who have no idea where it is unless they've worked up there or worked with Torres Strait Islanders on the mainland, are related to or have married a Torres Strait Islander. Eddie's identity was the first thing that the mainstream media had trouble grasping when reporting on the historic case the day the judgement was handed down in Canberra. Yeah, he was, I think, often referred to as an Aboriginal land rights campaigner and activist and and all that kind of stuff. Well, actually, no, no, he's he's a he's a Miriam man. You know, he's a he's a man from from Mur, and I think it was important to make that distinction. But mainstream press, being what it is, you know, blackfellas are blackfellas. The media focused only on Eddie as he was the first name plaintiff of the group and the one who spearheaded the case. That's something that as a Torres Strait Islander with a family connection to Mer, Karen was always aware of. But, you know, also equally the other plaintiffs. I mean, we know it as the 
Mabo decision, but there had to be other people to support that claim. So, you know, I made sure that whenever we were reporting, this is particularly when I was now working on um, a National Indigenous Affairs Program, speaking out, or when I was working, um, you know, presenting Let's Talk at AAA Murray Country, that we, whenever there was mention of Mabo, um, Uncle Eddie, um, and the case itself, that the other um, plaintiffs were, were also mentioned, even now, today, um, you know, particularly when there's any um, heralded changes to native title or, say, when the anniversary comes up, we always remember the others that stood by him. As a journalist, I understand why this narrative became the narrative it did. The David versus Goliath storyline is one that the media loves, a man from a remote island taking on the state of Queensland. They've defined it down to one person and I feel sorry for the other plaintiffs. I mean, you know, the fact that there was a a female claimant, that was lost in the reporting. Karen raises a good point. 30 years on, what does Australia really know about the other plaintiffs in this case? Dave Passy, James Rice, Sam Passy, and the only woman in the group, Selua Marposali. The media is a fan of keeping things short and simple, particularly if it's for radio news. So when it comes to cultural identity, the word Aboriginal at the end of the day is shorter than Torres Strait Islander, whether it's correct or not. I think it was just simpler, isn't it? It's like the word Indigenous, because nobody wants to say Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, because it's a mouthful. (laughs) It's easier to brand everybody Indigenous. Everybody First Nations, um, you know, it's easier to say, yeah. Sometimes the nuances are missed in the sake of brevity, and you miss out on the full story. And in this case, the entire indigeneity of the plaintiffs was misidentified by the media. It was something which took about 30 years to rectify, but you'll sometimes still hear Eddie referred to as an Aboriginal land rights campaigner. However, it is something this case definitely gave a bigger voice to, the land rights movement. But by not recognising the unique place Australia has as a country with two distinct Indigenous groups, you do a disservice to your audience as a journalist. And once you send out a particular narrative, it's very hard to correct it after the fact, particularly now with the power of social media. Regardless of how the media were reporting the case in the first instance, the wider community, because of the reporting, were unsure what the success of this case meant to them. It was kind of like this this fear from non-Indigenous people about this decision and what it would mean to them and uh, this inability for them to, well, put yourself in the plaintiff's position or put yourself in a Torres Strait Islander's position um, or an Aboriginal person's position who for centuries have been told that they (laughs) don't have any rights to land and this changed it all. 
It was this fear of the unknown in the aftermath of the case, and as new native title cases started, which saw the media and politicians latch onto that fear and run with it. The most influential around at that time, of course, would have been the shock jocks of the era, the John Laws of the day, who, if you can imagine opening up the phone lines after the Mabo decision, with people screaming concern about my backyard is going to be taken over. And instead of working to debunk the fear-mongering, news outlets sat idly by. We didn't see that kind of action from mainstream media to say, hey, this is a lie. Here's an opportunity for us to reset the relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people now. We've got the highest court in the land who just said, this is a fact. This land did not belong to anybody. It belonged to Wagadagan people. It belonged to Yagara people. It belonged to Eora people, they were all here before white man set foot on this country. So, yeah, that was an opportunity missed. Something that stayed with Karen from the reporting during this time was a comment by Tim Fisher after the Wick people's successful High Court case in 1996. He was the Deputy uh, Prime Minister of Australia, head of the National Party, and uh, he promised landowners, particularly pastoral lease landholders, bucket loads of extinguishment of native title. We talked about extinguishment in episode four. Extinguishment meaning the cancellation of native title in certain situations under the newly created National Native Title Act. Oh, just the bucket loads. Just reminded me, I guess, of, you know, pigs in a trough um, when, when you see governments who are obviously pork barreling. Well, this was just another prime example of it, wasn't it? <laughs> and it's like... And it's the media's preoccupation with a catchy phrase as well, rather than, you know, challenging the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. I mean, how can you represent for all when you're really only interested in one particular party? How are the interests of Indigenous peoples being served by this statement? Well, they're not. They're being diminished. Their rights are being diminished. And why wasn't anybody challenging that narrative or putting an alternative narrative to that? Kevin Smith remembers Tim Fisher's comments too and how they helped fuel the panic across parts of Australia. The native title bill was the longest running parliamentary debate in the history of this country. And the second longest parliamentary debate in this country was after the 1996 WIC amendments to the Native Title Act. So it just goes to show the level of heat around uh, when you try to give blackfellas rights. Uh, uh, and so um, 
But then what happened? We, we know this just from the public record. We actually had uh, a, the Deputy Prime Minister going on TV with a map of Australia saying, native title is out to get your backyards. And we know from the Mabo decision that was never going to be the case. And so, again, there was a political push to try to suppress legal rights and it actually caused a lot of fear in the community because it was a fear campaign. And, yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty because this is the start of a new, a new era of law uh, around property rights. When you've never been in the media spotlight, it can be hard to understand how stressful it can be when you're the one the media is focusing on. Someone who saw firsthand the toll it was taking on Eddie was his daughter Gail. She remembers helping her dad with his gardening work at JCU, James Cook University, when she was around eight years old. That was his full-time job for a long time. And then it got to a point where he stopped doing that because then the court case took over and then that consumed him. He was like crazy man, actually, but crazy man with a man-on-a-mission attitude. And for me, I could see the change in him because he became more determined, more driven about what he needed to do and how he needed to do things and who he needed to talk to. And and so for me, it was interesting to watch that whole process because I remember him still going, JCU, getting books and me lying on my bed looking through the bedroom door and it was the door was just slightly ajar and I remember just lying there watching him sit and smoke his cigarette and so you'd see him in a blue haze sitting with his head down holding his fountain pen reading these books and then all of a sudden putting the pen down taking his glasses off tapping the table and he'd start singing a song that reminded me him of home and then the song would stop my dad would bow his head and he'd cry. And then when he'd cry, he'd realise that um, I'd be watching. And so he'd look to the door and he would tell me to go to sleep. But, oh, sorry. It's, um, as I was saying that, I can actually see him. So... This is why, this is what's brought on tears for me at the moment. And and I wish, you know, during those times that my siblings could actually see what my dad was doing and what he, because he did all this when everyone was sleeping. And it just happened to me to be the sticky big that would just see these things happening. Because I knew he was, he loved his island. He just, and he wanted, wanted us to go back and be part of that island. And so, you know, from when I grew up and him talking about the aspirations he had for his people and his island and how, you know, the Torres Straits could be autonomous and and how that could work, these were the conversations he was having and planting seeds within his children. And for us, we are the bearers of of those dreams and aspirations.
Eddie also found himself at odds with his community at times, the community that he was fighting for. Gail says her dad had a bit of a self-care routine that he stuck to as the court fight dragged on and on. Dad was either out on his boat during the time of the court case because that was his stress relief. He'd go out and take it on his take it out on his boat, whether he'd be ripping it, ripping some of the boat out to rebuild something else, or repainting and painting and overpainting and taking it off and repainting. And that was my broken record with him was painting wax on, wax off with that paint on that boat. Another piece to the media story, which only recently came out, involved the then editor of the Townsville Bulletin and a white supremacist group operating in North Queensland. In his memoir, Elliot Hannay wrote about a disturbing encounter he had with a homegrown chapter of the KKK during the Meriam case. A delegation came by his office to tell him about a radical posing as a gardener at James Cook University. They told Hannay that he needed to be stopped before he ruined the country. They said Eddie had slipped under the radar. In a commentary published in the Australian newspaper in 2018, Hannay wrote, In 1980, the KKK, as a structured organisation in Australia, was considered by most to be an urban myth rather than a political or social reality. I guess there was no need for burning crosses or white robes while racist views were being accommodated within the Australian political system, where powerful voices were opposing land rights and refusing to address the glaring problems in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Unsettled by my encounter with the Klan, I wondered if things would be better when these kids grew up. I hoped that despite a hidden chapter of the Klan lurking within our city, the underlying community spirit of this colourful place might just be fertile enough to allow the seeds being planted by Eddie Marbo out at James Cook University to yield fruit in the years to come. You can understand why Charles's dad, co-plaintiff Dave Passy, was trying to shield his son from all of this. But even in death, the toll of this case would follow Eddie to his grave, literally. When someone passes in Torres Strait Islander culture, the grave is marked with a simple cross. After a period of time, a tombstone is put on the grave and unveiled at what is called a tombstone opening. Eddie Koiki Marbo's tombstone opening was three and a half years after his passing when this ceremony was held. It signals the end of the mourning period and is a celebration of the person's life. I mention this because while the media, government and non-Indigenous Australia grappled with the advent of native title, there was a moment when the media showed the reality of what the Marbo family had been subjected to back home in Townsville. Former Black community school student Noel Zaro, who you heard in episode three, remembers what happened the day after the tombstone was unveiled. The very next day, while we were clearing the hall, cleaning up outside the hall, I went there to help clean up after the feasting. There was a few of us walking around the hall cleaning up and then we heard on the radio. One of the cousins came and told us, he heard on the radio that um, our Koki's grave got desecrated. We were all shocked. We couldn't believe him. We thought he was just mucking around. We said to him, no, you're gammon. But, um, but we all ended up hearing it on the radio news. We're all shocked actually. I was shocked and, and sad. I was sad as well because my hour, my hour's um, 
grave got vandalised, desecrated. Eddie's tombstone had been vandalised. Swastikas and racist words were spray-painted all over the tombstone and the grave. A bronze depiction of his face on the front of the tombstone had been broken off. Even in death, the toll of the case was ever-present. Coming up on Episode 6, the final episode of Hi, I'm Eddie. It's a real good time for us to sit down together as a people. Not only as Miriam, but as all Torres Strait Islanders, and I think as all Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in, here in this country, we'll need to sit down together and say, OK, where are we now? What's been the legacy of the High Court decision? And is there unfinished business? Hi, I'm Eddie was commissioned by the State Library of Queensland. It was co-produced by Wendy Love and me, Rihanna Patrick. If you'd like to learn more, check out the links in the show notes of the episode description on whatever podcasting app you're listening on.